Well, I've been accused of many things, but being a used book salesman is... Uh, is... So, it's, it's a real privilege to be here and have this chance to share. Let's just have a moment of prayer as the, as before I speak. Heavenly Father, we just commit this time into your hands, and I pray that you would take my lips and speak through them, that you would take our minds and think through them, and that you would take our lives and live through them to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, it would be a great help to me. Um, you could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a passage there. And my theme, as you can see, is created fragility and God's grace. So 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And on, on to verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So I've been working as a baby doctor for more than 20, 25 years, caring for tiny little vulnerable babies in a big intensive care unit in central London, and uh, struggling with many of the ethical challenges uh, and raised by advances in technology. And uh, I've been sharing and talking about this uh, both on Friday and Saturday, but uh, this morning I felt I should, wanted to share more personally about my own experiences, not so much about the ethical challenges, but about <clears throat> my personal experiences of pressure and being under stress and the consequences of that. And uh, this passage uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul is sharing very personally about his own experiences of pressure and stress, uh, really resonate with me and has been something very significant in my own life. So, if you knew anything about the life and writings of the Apostle Paul, he was obviously a man under huge stress. If he was to do one of those stress inventories, he'd come out pretty high. Now, I don't want to be simplistic and just apply everything that applied to Paul to our own lives. I mean, Paul is a pioneer, he's a missionary, he's an apostle, but he was a human being like us too. And so, just look at this passage about the words he uses to describe his lifestyle and ask yourself, does this ring any bells with me? Have I experienced anything like this? 
So he's hard-pressed. The literal meaning is under pressure, hedged in. There are few alternatives. And then he describes himself as perplexed, disturbed, in doubt, at a loss, uncertain. I must say, I find that particular word incredibly encouraging. Because as somebody who's tried to wrestle with some deep philosophical and theological things about medical ethics and what it means to be human, you know, here is one of the world's, possibly the world's greatest theologians, one of this huge academic intellects, the Apostle Paul, who's just written the whole of Romans. And how does he describe himself? Confused. Now, confused of Tarsus. So if Paul is perplexed, if Paul is confused, then maybe we're allowed to be confused and perplexed as well. We don't have to pretend that we've got it all worked out. He describes himself as persecuted, literally pressurized, driven, pursued, struck to the ground, given over to death. And yet, despite this pressure, which could easily lead to complete breakdown, to despair, Paul is surviving. He's hanging on. How on earth is he doing it, despite this enormous pressure? And the answer is the treasure. The, that, and so the, these are some of the things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the treasure. We're going to look at the clay pot. We're going to look at the reason. And we're going to look at the unseen hope. So what is the treasure? The treasure is that Paul recognizes he's, he's seen and known something fantastic. He's seen and known the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's seen and known God's glory not revealed in the majesty of creation, not in the stars, not in the works of the Creator, not revealed in God's wonderful workings in human history. No, Paul has seen God's glory in the face of a human being, in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that every Christian, whether they're aware of it or not, carry this amazing treasure, the light of God's glory revealed where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Most of the time, that glory was, the glory that was in Jesus was covered, was hidden. There was just one occasion, do you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when just for a short time, the veil was pulled apart and just those inner three apostles were able to see the real glory, the glory of God, and they were overwhelmed by the radiance. We get it again in the in book of Revelation, don't you, where the, the risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John in amazing glory, and John falls at his face. But you know, Jesus' glory was revealed in other ways. In the beginning of John's gospel, it says that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. We were thinking yesterday how about the grace and truth that you see in the life of Jesus is one of the most amazingly powerful things and a way that his glory is revealed. And, you know, we need to have that same mix of grace and truth as we try to reach out to people who are hurting. If you just have truth by itself, truth is... In, is is, uh, it can be powerful, but you know, it can be damaging. It can be destructive. Truth by itself can, be, can have really destructive effects. If you have grace by itself, 
Grace by itself can be very soft, very compassionate, very warm, but it can be ultimately powerless. But when you mix, when you mingle, when you see grace and truth totally intertwined, then you have something incredibly powerful because you have Jesus himself, you have the character of Jesus, and you have the glory of Jesus. And that's what we're called to do, we're to reach out to people with grace and truth intertwined. Irenaeus, who was uh, one of the church fathers writing only a, a couple of centuries after Christ, he, he wrote these famous words, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Now that slogan has been taken up by many humanists recently um, and to imply that you know, any human being fully alive becomes the glory of God. That's not what Irenaeus meant. What Irenaeus meant was that the glory of God is in a particular man fully alive in the man Jesus. And as we see his humanity fully alive, we actually see God's glory. And as we come to that awareness of God's glory, then we are born again. And Paul says that the miracle of the new birth is just as amazing, just as awe-inspiring as the miracle of creation himself. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God says, let there be light at the beginning of creation, boom, and there is light. Just his very words spoken brings light. And the same thing happens in our own hearts, that God can say, let there be light. And then we can see in a new way the glory of God. So the treasure that Paul carries everywhere is this divine light, the glory of Jesus Christ, burning, purifying, transforming, bearing fruit. This is the treasure that each one of us who's a Christian carries with us. So surely with this kind of treasure, Paul and all of us who are truly born again are going to be invincible, superhuman, dynamic, victorious, triumphant, powerful, surely. But actually, no. Why? Because this treasure is placed in a clay pot. Apparently, at the time of the New Testament, it was quite common for people to put the household jewels into some little clay pot, you know, something that to, to carry a flour or even a sewage vessel or something like that, so that if any thieves broke in, they wouldn't know where the jewellery was. And that's the image that Paul chooses to use, that this treasure of the glory of God is hidden in this pathetic and uninspiring uh, clay pot. So what is the clay pot? <clears throat> well, the clay pot is our humanity. Lovingly designed by God with all its limitations, fragility, weakness, and dependence. You see, God's plan was that we as human beings should share the limitations and the fragility, the physicality, and the dependence of the rest of creation. I mean, he could presumably have chosen to make us strong, dynamic, powerful beings. He could have chosen to make us like the cherubim and the seraphim, resilient, powerful, glorious. But no, he chose to make us weak and fragile and dependent and vulnerable. 
We are not angelic beings. We're not freed from the limitations of the physical universe. We're made out of dust, and that's why we're subject to the effects of stress, fatigue, burnout, illness, and depression. And God chose to make us utterly dependent on the love and care and protection of others. So dependence is part of what it means to be human. And it comes from our creation as pathetic, fragile, carbon-based life forms. We're made out of the dust of the earth, like everything else. And therefore, we share the limitations of the physical universe. And this is not an unfortunate side effect. No, this is part of the design. Notice this was God's plan to put his wonderful treasure in our fragile physical forms. And you know, this is very, very countercultural message. In our modern technological secular world, and particularly in the world of medical care and medical ethics where I work, the myth of individualism and independence is very strong. It's what the ethicists called autonomy, autonomos. It literally means I make my own rules. I am the God of my own life. I am, you know that poem Invictus, that, they, that I am the heroic, uh, the individual, the one who chooses and lives and does it my way and is utterly independent. And you know, that's a weird and strange fantasy. It is complete rubbish because none of us are actually independent. None of us are like that. None of us can transcend our very creation as dependent beings. You see, the fact is, you came into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. The very fact that you're sitting there looking reasonably well cared for tells me that when you were born, somebody loved you. Somebody kept you warm. Somebody fed you. Somebody protected you. Somebody wiped your bottom. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. You could do nothing for yourself. And then we come into this stage of our lives when other people depend on us. And my wife and I, we've got three grown-up boys, and this, they're still dependent on us, and they still need us. Not quite to wipe their bottoms, but they still need us <laughs> in other ways. So this phase where other people depend on us is something that goes on for a very long time. But you know, most of us are going to end our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And that isn't some terrible, evil, horrible. No, it's part of the plan. It's part of the, the, the dependence, it's part of the narrative. And it's there, the, but the most amazing and wonderful thing is that not just that God makes this wonderful but pathetic human fragile being and says, well, there you are, that's it, get on with it, you know, good luck with that. You know, it's going to be hard, but all the best. No. God himself, the God of the universe, the God of total power, the one who totally really does have autonomy, that God chooses to make himself dependent. And he is born as a baby, and he chooses to make himself fragile, and he can do nothing for himself, and he needs to be washed, and he needs to be fed, and he needs to have his bottom wiped. I mean, we're so familiar with the Christmas story that we've forgotten how totally and utterly scandalous it is. I mean, when, they, when the first Christians started, started talking about the fact that God had come as a baby, people were scandalized. They, that, was, that was offensive 
I mean, bizarre, the idea that God himself has to have his bottom wiped. I mean, what planet are you on? I mean, this is ridiculous. And of course, at the end of his life, on the cross, the God of the universe is stretched out and through, through it with parched lips, the God of the universe says, I am thirsty. And he can do nothing for himself. He's totally and utterly dependent. So God himself, the God of the universe, chooses to enter into this experience of dependence and fragility. And yet, what the Christian faith teaches us is at that very moment of total dependence, even while he's having his bottom wiped in a nursery in Bethlehem, um, or in a stable, even worse than nursery, the, he is still the second person of the Trinity. He is still the God of the universe, upholding the entire fabric of creation by the word of his power. So his dignity and his status is in no way touched by his dependence. You know, that's a really important message, and it's a particularly important message in our today's secular society. So please remember this. If you find yourself at some stage, as many of you will, and as I have, find myself totally and utterly dependent on the love and care of others, and you need to be washed, and you need to be cared for, and you need to have your bottom wiped, your unique status, your dignity, as a beloved princess or prince of the Most High, is in no way touched. You're still that unique and valuable person. Because God himself has been there before, and he's been with you. As somebody put it, he was with us in the darkness of the tomb, of the womb, as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. And so that's my story as well. And I just want to share a little bit of my own experience. Uh, I'm not doing this out of a kind of exhibitionism so that I can show off and display all my wounds in public. I'm doing this simply because I've found that it can be helpful to other people who may be facing some similar or some different challenges. Some years ago, I'd become the most senior consultant on the baby unit. Uh, my other colleagues had retired and I had become the most senior person. And my special areas of interest were brain damage and ethical difficulties. And so I had collected a caseload of the most awfully challenging and difficult and intractable clinical problems. And I was the one who was there to try and, and sort it all out. And I was trying to be God's person. I knew that God had called me into this position. I felt that he had given me the gifts, he'd given me these opportunities, and I had to somehow try and be God's person in this situation. And along with that, I was trying to lead a major research project, and I had a big research team with me, and we were trying a new experimental treatment, trying to uh, treat brain damage in newborn babies by cooling them, which was a new experimental treatment, and very risky. And I was the head of this research project, and I knew that if it went wrong, I was the one in the firing squad. I used to lie in bed at night and imagine the sort of banner headlines if it all went horribly wrong. Babies die in failed hospital experiment. You know, senior professor uh, suspended. And, you know, so th this was this kind of sort of pressure that I felt I was under. And I felt that I was in this position and I couldn't find any way out. I felt trapped. And in the end, something had to break. And actually what happened is I suddenly went mad. I suddenly had an acute mental illness. It was slightly ironic because I had the reputation of being the most psychiatrically stable member 
on the baby unit. And I was the one that other people used to come and pour out their heart to and weep on my shoulder, either literally or metaphorically. And then suddenly, I was nowhere. It happened while I was actually on duty in the intensive care unit. It was though I was trapped in a terrible and terrifying nightmare, which I couldn't get out of. But actually, it was all real. It was all happening to me. I was admitted for emergency investigations. I was transferred to a private psychiatric hospital. I slowly recovered. I had a number of weeks off work and then slowly returned back to work. And then a few months later, I went crashing again into a severe depression and ended up in a locked psychiatric ward in an NHS ward in central London. And I'm afraid the contrast between the very pleasant private hospital that I'd been in first and the NHS psychiatric ward in central London was, was stark. The atmosphere was the very reverse of a therapeutic environment. It felt dangerous and threatening. Some of my fellow patients were chronic paranoid schizophrenics who looked at you with frank malevolence as if to say, if only I had a knife, I would do you in. And I think they probably, that was what they would have done. Someone tried to set the ward alight when I was there. And I'm not intending to criticize the staff. They were trying to do their best in what were appalling circumstances. And it was over 10 years ago, but I can still remember vividly lining up in the shambling queue to get your medication. And they've taken your belt away in case you hang yourself. And I'm in this queue of shambling wrecks of humanity. And I'm one of them. And I'm thinking, this is where I belong. And this is where I'll probably be for the rest of my life. And at that point, I thought I was completely wasted, that I would never again be able to have any kind of professional work. I would never again have any kind of Christian ministry. And I thought I'd have to watch my family struggle with poverty and shame. And at that time, if you talked to me about the love of God, it would have been completely meaningless. God was just a word with three letters. But you know, there was one thing that penetrated through into this darkness in my locked psychiatric ward, and that was that I was loved. My wife, Celia, came and cuddled me. A dear friend from church came, and, and my, amazingly, my dear friend and spiritual father, John Stott, tracked me down and telephoned me in the ward and said, I appreciate your friendship, John. And that moved me to tears, and it still does. So even in that darkness, there were people who loved me. And later on, I was reminded by these words from Bernard of Clairvaux. Sorry, technology isn't working. Christ himself kisses us in the love of our friends. Christ himself kisses us in the love of our friends. You see, there are times of extreme loss and darkness when we're not able to access God's presence and reality in a direct manner. But we are able to experience his love mediated through our friends. Because we are physical and frail and dependent beings, then we need more than purely spiritual care. We need to feel physical arms around us. We need to hear physical words. We need a physical hug. And that's why the Lord Jesus gives us our friends, our Christian friends especially, to communicate his love for us. Christ himself kisses us in the love of our friends. So here's a practical application. If you are, particularly as a student or at the beginning of your life, you know, it's so incredibly important to be building strong, healthy Christian friendships which can sustain you through the pressures and stresses and catastrophes of life. And those kind of friendships don't happen automatically. They need nurturing and developing 
and feeding, but they're incredibly precious because they're a means by which Christ himself can reach out to us. The very fact that I'm standing here talking to you is evidence of God's grace. Through this painful experience, I've discovered afresh God's love, communicated, mediated through other people, through my wife and through my friends. And of course, I recognize that some of my breakdown was my own responsibility. It was, it was due to my own failures. It was due to my own arrogance. But by God's grace, slowly over a period of years, I found healing. And actually, you know, I'm strangely grateful that God took me into that deep darkness. It's given me new insights into the mysterious wonder of God's heart. And the way that God can take terrible, evil, inexplicable things... And by his grace, he turns it into blessing and healing and life. I know it's part of his plan. It seems that God's plan for this age is not to abolish suffering. It's to redeem it. It's to transform it. It's to turn it around into blessing and healing. And I've come to believe that there is nothing that can happen, however evil, however horrific, however destructive, there is nothing that God cannot take and turn into blessing and healing. Now, I can't prove that. that is, that's a statement of faith. But I do actually believe it. And Paul's letter is penetrated through with this wonderful sense of God's grace. So he says... I'm hard-pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I'm persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I'm always carrying the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus is shown. So it's certainly not the truth that the more we go on the Christian way, the less you're going to get stressed, the less you will struggle, the less you will be battered and bruised. Actually, it often seems to work the other way around, paradoxically. And, you know, you may be at the beginning of your life and you think, you know, well, things are sort of pretty good, really, and it's not too bad, and I'm getting <coughs> along. And I'm afraid at some point in your life you are going to face, as I did, some kind of unexpected catastrophic reverse, some... some and, and you'll be wondering, where is God in all this? But here we have this amazing thing, that in, out of this pathetic, frail, dependent, fragile vessel, God's grace can be revealed. Our fragility and weakness is not just an accident. No, it's part of God's plan. And it, why? It's so that the all-surpassing power belongs to God. That's the reason, ultimately, for this strange paradox. God himself enters into the experience of suffering so that he may ultimately destroy it. There's a wonderful poem that was written at the end of the First World War by a poet, Edward Shillito, talking about what the First World War had revealed uh, in, in, in that catastrophic uh, suffering of the First World War, there were some people who found faith. And the poem says, The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but you alone.
So the wounded God, which you see in the Lord Jesus, the wounded heart of suffering, actually speaks to our wounds. It speaks to our vulnerability and frailty and brokenness. So we've talked about the treasure, we've talked about the clay pot, we've talked about the reason, and finally, the unseen hope. I was talking to my psychiatrist some time ago, and he had experience of helping victims of torture and of imprisonment and abuse. He said that human beings could tolerate the most amazing deprivation and appalling experiences provided one thing, they had some kind of hope. So if they were sitting in their prison being tortured, if they could just hope about future deliverance, about release, about meeting their wife or children again, they could survive almost anything. But once the hope was lost, it was impossible to maintain their sanity. They would go mad in one form or another. And so if we are going to survive these pressures, we need hope. And Paul gives us strong and undeniable reasons to hope. Therefore, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. Paul is surviving the overwhelming stress because his eyes are fixed on the hope which the future holds. The trouble in the present is light and momentary, and to come there is an everlasting weight of glory. It's amazing, isn't it, that glory can have a weight. He's trying, Paul is trying to use words to, to say that this isn't just something fragile and, and evanescent. No, this glory is so profound, it's so real, it's so phenomenal that we don't need to lose heart. We're going to have hope. These are some words of C.S. Lewis. He said this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. In other words, he went on to say, you've never met an ordinary person. There is no such thing as an ordinary person. We carry within us, by God's grace, the possibility of being utterly transformed into the new heaven and the new earth. The, the, the present, the outer shell, is what is visible, and it's decaying, it's temporary, it's, it's constantly decaying. But the inward reality is unseen, it's internal, but it's eternal, it's everlasting, and it's growing. And uh, what Paul says is we have to fix our eyes on what is unseen. Now there's a paradox. How can you watch, how can you fix your eyes on what you can't see? But that's precisely what he tells us to do, to concentrate on what we can't see. And hope, you know, is a Christian discipline. It's something you need to practice every single day. You need to practice the discipline of hope. G.K. Chesterton said something very interesting. He said there are two opposite sins against Christian hope. There's the sin of presumption and there's the sin of despair. And notice they are both sins. The sin of presumption, to believe that everything's going to be fine. Yes, it's all going to be wonderful. I'm serving God. Hallelujah. Actually, that's a sin. But at the same time, the sin of despair, it's hopeless. It can never get any better. I'm trapped. That's also a sin. And we need, I, I, I'm, to be honest, I've fallen into both sins at different times of my life. But what I'm learning is that I need to practice every day the discipline of Christian hope to fix my eyes on what is unseen.
every day, every day. Because God's plan for this age, as I said, is not to abolish human suffering, it's to redeem it. But you know that transformation of suffering into glory, it doesn't happen automatically. It requires our willing acceptance. It requires our, our, our allowing us to accept help from others and our willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to bring his gentle healing into our hearts and our minds and our lives. So maybe you're struggling. Maybe you feel you're losing hope. Maybe you too need to learn what it means to fix your eyes on the unseen. And if you're struggling in the blackness of mental health issues like depression, I hope that my, what I, my words can give you some hope. Don't give up. Don't despair. There is hope. Hang on in there. But first you need to admit that you need help. You see, there are human arms who can support you, who can be God's love in physical form. I like the story of the little girl who's, who's going, to, um, going to sleep in the bedroom upstairs and uh, mummy's downstairs in the kitchen and she's, um, she, she's cooking for supper and this little voice comes down and says, mummy, mummy, I'm scared, it's very dark in here. And, and mummy says, and the little girl says, can you come and give me a cuddle? And, and mummy says, I'm, I'm sorry dear, I'm very busy, I can't go and give you a cuddle. There's a pause and then down the stairs, mummy, mummy, I'm still scared, can daddy come and give me a cuddle? And and, and mummy says, no, I'm very sorry, daddy's at work. I've, I've recently realized it's a very sexist story, I'm sorry. No, mummy's in the house. I'll, I'll, I'll need to change it around. Anyway, daddy's at work, mummy's in the kitchen. So mummy, who is a very, very spiritual person, says, calls up and says, just remember that God is with you, and he's there, and he will give you a cuddle. And there's a pause, and then down the stairs comes a rather plaintive voice, but mummy... I need someone with skin on. <laughs> and actually, I think that's quite a profound story. It's the same message, that we need God's love to be mediated with skin on. And that's what we're called to be if we're carers, uh, to, to, to show God's love to others with skin on in a, in a physical way. And so there are human arms who can support us and who can be God's love. There are human voices that can comfort us and help us find healing. And we can become the dwelling place of God. And I want to close with this wonderful uh, vision. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, it is going to end. The suffering, the pain, the tears, they are going to end. And you know, I find this description of the Almighty God incredibly moving. Because here is a picture not of the God of, the, of almighty power and radiance on his throne. No, this is the picture of a mother's lap and a tear-stained face and gentle fingers that are wiping away the tears. God himself will wipe away the tears, our motherly God, our motherly Father. And that's what he plans to do for us. And that's what we need to fix our eyes on. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter for the, 
to the full light of day. You know, in secular thinking, a human life, it starts from nothing, you develop, you get more and more and more, you get stronger, you get fitter, you learn things, it's all getting better and better and better, and then you hit 25. <laughs> and from that time onwards, it's basically downhill all the way, bit by bit. Your DNA is accumulating errors, your cells are oxidizing, your muscles getting flabby, your skin's getting wrinkly, down and down it goes, down and down. To begin with, the damage isn't obvious, but by the time you get to my age, it's pretty obvious, the damage is there, it's getting worse and worse and worse, and then eventually the damage is so overwhelming, you die, and that's it. <laughs> get with it, that's life, okay? Get with it. But you know, in Christian thinking, it's totally different. It's the first gleam of dawn, which is growing into the everlasting day. I came across this picture on the internet. No, it's, you can hardly see it, but anyway, they, two climbers went up uh, the, the, the highest peak in Alaska, and they, in the dark, and they clung to the rock in the dark, and then they waited for the dawn, and the first gleam of dawn, they took that photograph. And that's the picture. You know, maybe you've been driving through the night and it goes on and on and on and on. You think it's never going to end, it's never going to end. And then you see it out on the horizon, that first blush. And you know, inexorably, second by second, minute by minute, the day is coming. Nothing can stop it. It's coming. Now that's the picture. And that's what we've got to have our eyes fixed on. That first blush of dawn that's growing and growing and growing into the everlasting day. May God help us to live like that to his glory. Amen.